Hello, I'm Stan Crook, and welcome to the Enlorn podcast series, a podcast series that focuses exclusively on the needs of patients with nanorare diseases. Today, I'm privileged uh, to have as a special guest uh, Dr. Joseph Gleason. Uh, Joe, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm very pleased to be here. Dr. Gleason is the Rady Professor of Neuroscience and Pediatrics at UCSD in San Diego. He's also the Director of Neuroscience at the Rady Children's Institute for Genomic Medicine. And in addition to all of his other responsibilities, Dr. Gleason has joined Enlorem as our Chief Medical Officer. Dr. Gleason is a world-renowned geneticist, neurologist, and pediatrician who's been recognized with many awards, including most recently the Bernard Sachs Award from the Child Neurology Society. Um, and he is a, a, a member of the National Institute of Medicine or the National Academy of Science. Uh, so Joe, again, uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, I'm really pleased to be here. I feel like the, we should be trading places because I, it's usually the more distinguished person that is being interviewed. So please forgive me. <laughs> yeah, well, we can, we can trade distinguishes uh, over time. So Joe, I know uh, you're a California lad, uh, and, and you actually went to UCSD as an undergraduate in, in chemistry. Um, so do you use the chemistry uh, in what you do every day? I do, actually, yeah. I, I uh, really uh, look back on that experience, you know, mm -hmm. with fondness. Uh -huh. I learned so much from so many people about how mm -hmm. to think about uh, chem how chemicals interact and how, how chemistry works. And, and that really framed how I approached medicine mm -hmm. in a way because I thought about things from a very reductionistic point of view. Mm -hmm. uh, the body is a, as a, as a series of uh, a number of chemicals that are interacting with each other. Mm -hmm. And that's also how I think about medicines, you mm -hmm. know, and thinking about drugs and uh, chemistry is, is a wonderful background for medicine. Oh, I couldn't agree more. So when did you decide that you were interested in medicine as an expression of chemistry? Well, I was finishing up college and it was going to go uh, one of two paths, either chemistry or, or medicine. And I really enjoyed my interactions with patients. I was mm -hmm. volunteering a bit at the hospital mm -hmm. in San Diego. Mm -hmm. And I figured this would be a really good way for me to apply um, what I'd learned in college. Mm -hmm. And I decided if I went that route, what I really wanted to do is figure out how the brain works. Mm -hmm. um, and from a point of disease, mm -hmm. you know, and that, that's kind of been my mission. Mm -hmm. How do we think and feel? How, does, how can disease teach us about how the brain functions? And that question has evolved now into how can we cure patients? Mm -hmm. You know, it's really part of the same journey for me. Oh, yeah, very much so. So you traveled east for a while. You went to Pritzker Medical School and University of Chicago, and then you did your residency and fellowship at, at Harvard. Is that right? Correct, yeah. 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 And so y y chemistry to how the brain works, therefore medicine, but then genetics. Yeah, I was really fortunate to have a series of, of mentors as I went through my training first at the University of Chicago, mm -hmm. a fellow named Peter Huntenlocker, mm -hmm. who really um, opened my eyes to child neurology, which is the study of really how the brain forms and how we mature as humans. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and then at Boston Children's Hospital, uh, where I did my pediatric residency in neurology. And it was there I, I saw so many patients where we had no answers. Mm -hmm. 
every patient was another mystery. We knew of a total of about five diseases. We had Tay-Sachs disease, we had spinal muscular atrophy, mm -hmm. Down syndrome, Fragile X, and that was it. And every other patient, which was 99% of the patients that we saw, had no diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And it was with that that I, I felt like I could see a path where if we really wanted to change the lives of these young children, we had to learn more about the disease. Mm -hmm. uh, I felt so much like what we were doing was just treating the symptoms mm -hmm. and not really understanding the condition that led the child to have the, have the medical uh, problems that they had. Mm -hmm. So do you have a sense of what fraction of, of pediatric neurological conditions are really have a significant genetic component to them? Well, we divide them up into um, those that are known to be environmental. We have a lot of causes that are traumatic, uh, maternal exposure to certain things, mm -hmm. uh, make a sizable fraction. But I, I would say upwards of more than 50% of the children, especially those that present in the first five years of life or so. Mm -hmm. And you now you know, the, our field has developed a pretty good sense of when a child has a potential genetic condition. There's certain features about the, the presentation that tell us this is not something that is environmental. It wasn't due to uh, the short stay in the neonatal ICU like everyone attributed this to. No, it wasn't that they were in the NICU for a week or that they were born you know, a couple of weeks early that has led to the problems. And um, with that, uh, coupled with uh, exome genome sequencing, mm -hmm. we're now able to make diagnosis mm -hmm. in upwards of half of the children that we see and that's been tremendously rewarding to finally have the answers and share that with the families that this is the answer, this is the cause. It's not some mysterious thing. It's not because it runs in your family or you somehow did something wrong when you were a mother to your child. Uh, it's in the DNA, you know, and that is both uh, satisfying but also unsatisfying to a certain degree. We know the causes now, but we don't, you know, have the answers for how to treat. So you and I have uh, lived through what people call the genomic revolution, and we all know that it really began in 1954 with Watson and Crick, and it really is an evolution. But uh, just, just talk for a minute about the impact of genomic sequencing and how that's uh, informed basically everything about medicine, in, including neurology. I think neurology, you know, more so than other fields even, um, uh, genomics has really touched it because we can't, uh, unlike in, you know, heart disease or pulmonary disease or renal disease, we don't have a good way to assess the brain. We can do MRI scans or EEGs, but we needed to have another uh, kind of an orthogonal uh, picture of what was happening with the patient. And genomics has really started to fill that space. Mm -hmm. And in the future, we might see other forms of omics, uh, transcriptomics or metabolomics or those kinds of things, but mm -hmm. genomics has really had a huge impact in the field mm -hmm. of, ad of both adult neurology and, and child neurology. And uh, I think it's not really something that's taught so well in medical schools and probably a lot of physicians are, are still learning about it. You know, it's a journey for these doctors, um, and, but, but the doctors need to understand uh, and, and they are uh, learning more and more about it in day-to-day -day practice. Mm -hmm. So, I'm just for just for a minute, let's talk about what a genotype actually is. What, what does that actually mean? Well, we have around three billion you know, DNA bases, <clears throat> and each, each one of those bases can take any of four different letters. 
and a genotype is your letter at a particular position mm -hmm. in your DNA strand across your 23 chromosomes. Mm -hmm. uh, that means there's a lot of different genotypes. Each person could have potentially billions of individual genotypes. Whole genome sequencing uh, sequences every single one of those letters. And that's been the revolution in the last 10 years or so that's really allowed us to peer into uh, someone's DNA makeup and given us a window into disease that we never had before. Mm -hmm. So um, a genotype then is basically the totality of a person's genetic capability, I suppose you'd say. Well, there's a genotype and then there's the genome, mm -hmm. right? So we hardly use the word genotype anymore um, unless we're talking about a particular cause for a disease. We might say you have a genotype that predicts you're going to have Huntington's disease or Tay-Sachs or breast cancer or something mm -hmm. like this. Mm -hmm. But now that's in the context of all three billion bases. Mm -hmm. And so what I think where the field is going in the future is understanding not just, not just the individual cause for the disease that's presenting in front of the doctor, but what does the rest of the genome tell you about how you might respond to certain drugs using pharmacogenetics or how uh, your family history might intersect with your genome to predict other mm -hmm. uh, disease risk um, to, your, to the person, or not just the person, but also the person's offspring. You know, we're very interested in our, our research lab. We're studying uh, the origins of uh, new mutations that arise. And so someone's genetic makeup might be perfectly fit, but then their child might have a new mutation. Mm -hmm. And we really want to understand the causes of that so we can think about ways of preventing those mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, so that's, and then, so the other word that we hear a lot about is phenotype, mm. and, uh, and, and how does genotype create a phenotype and, in, you know, in, inform the body as to what it's supposed to be and do and what it should do better? Well, there's, in the, of course, as you know, there's uh, Mendelian genetics, which in, in which your genotype perfectly predicts your phenotype. In other words, if you have a certain DNA base, there's almost 100% certainty you're going to have this condition as a result. Mm -hmm. um, and those are the ones that uh, my laboratory mostly works on. And those are the ones that I think where those genotypes have the best predictive power for disease risk. <clears throat> um, and then there's other sorts of genotypes that can change your risk for a disease, but don't predict with 100% certainty you're going to get them. Mm -hmm. um, and in the future, I think as all this genomics is coming together, we're gonna, the field is gonna do a much better job of being able to predict phenotype, in other words, disease, from genotype. Mm -hmm. Those correlations are still kind of weak in many fields, but improving. Mm -hmm. And this is where we're gonna see huge investments, I think, from the NIH and pharmaceutical industry industry and lots of other players. Mm -hmm. So um, there are common genetic mutations and there are uncommon genetic mutations and I think everyone is familiar with common diseases, rare diseases and ultra rare diseases and whatnot. How frequent is it that, uh, that, that, that there's a patient who has a mutation that just seems unique to that person in the entire world? Is, is that a common occurrence? Or how often would you expect to see somebody like that? Uh, very common, surprisingly common. Uh, in fact, that's one of the criteria that we use when we're evaluating mutations, is uh, if it's not seen previously in healthy people, then it's more likely to be causing disease. 
Of course, there are founder mutations. We always talk about the founder mutations for Tay-Sachs or BRCA mm -hmm. or, or other conditions, cystic fibrosis. Those mutations have been documented decades ago, and we know that they're more common than we would expect by chance, probably because there's been some uh, environmental influence that has provided some uh, benefit to having those mutations, like mm -hmm. we know for sickle cell disease, for instance. But uh, for the most part, human disease is due to rare mutations, we think of. Uh, and as a field, geneticists are trying to classify those mutations so we, we know what they look like, we know how to spot them, and we can label them all, give them a name and a number so that when we see them again in another person, we know mm -hmm. that's the cause. But still, there's going to be lots and lots of mutations that come up that this is the very first patient with it. I'd say 90% of the mutations that we identify, there's, they're unique to that one person. And it creates a huge unmet medical need. I mean, in the first instance, just how do you figure out that that person has a unique mutation? I mean, if you've never seen anything like it before, how do you recognize it? How do you, how do you fit that into your differential diagnosis? Well, this has been the whole field uh, and experience from the whole field of, in genetics um, because the path is usually you find one mutation that looks like it makes sense. We check to make sure every diseased person in that family has that same mutation. If they don't, we throw the mutation out. It can't be the cause. Mm -hmm. And then we compare the notes with our friends. Mm -hmm. And now there's great databases that allow us to compare uh, worldwide every patient with a certain disease that has presented with a certain DNA mutation. So the, there's a difference between the DNA mutation and the gene in which it occurs, of course. So a lot of these unique mutations are, are occurring in genes that are previously linked to disease or maybe even new to that uh, disease. But I think as a field, we're gaining an appreciation for how uh, the, the granularity of the mutational landscape that produce you know, rare disease. It's amazing. So you just recently published a paper that talked about mutation-directed treatment and mutation-directed medicine. And, you know, um, I think most, of, most folks, you know, think that these names of diseases that we use commonly that were created centuries ago that just describe what a patient looks like when they progress far enough to be sick mean something. But... Uh, uh, I thought that paper was very uh, insightful because I think it points to the future of medicine, which is an action-oriented definition of a disease. You want to talk about that for a minute? Yeah, we're really excited about this concept. And uh, that what led to that paper was uh, my, my own experience and the experience of my lab seeing um, therapies developed for, for, for rare mutations. And we wondered how commonly, how common would it be for a given mutation that it could be treatable with an individualized antisense or gene therapy. And so we downloaded the entire human mutational database, mm -hmm. uh, what's, what's called a ClinVar, mm -hmm. that we had access to, and around two million known human mutations. And we found that over half of them, there's a viable path to a therapy, mm -hmm. which was shocking for us. We had no idea that there was gonna be potential therapy for roughly half of the mutations that we think mm -hmm. about. That paper is not actually published. It's, it's on BioArchive, but we hope it will appear soon. Mm -hmm. uh, we've gotten a lot of feedback from people. They like the paper. Mm -hmm. It's had thousands and thousands of downloads now. And uh, we hope that it starts to change the way doctors and patients think about disease. Ultimately, we like 
when a person, when a doctor orders a gen genetic a genome on a patient, that it doesn't just say, we found the cause, here it is. It says, we found the cause, here it is, and we predict it might have a treatment for you. So now you have a name of a disease that matters because it's an actionable name. Right. You have a disease caused by this mutation in this gene, and, and with your algorithm and as it progresses and gets more sophisticated, and here's a possible solution for you. Right. Well, that's the, the field of medicine is based upon that whole premise. Mm -hmm. We don't just diagnose, we diagnose and treat. Mm -hmm. But for genetic diseases, for, for a long time, we have lacked that possibility. And this is why so many people are excited about gene therapy and all of its various forms, includes viral and, and ASOs and mm -hmm. CRISPR and lots of other things. So yeah, it's really exciting time in medicine. Well, um, of course, uh, I very much appreciate the fact that uh, given how busy you are and how many different hats you wear, that you've chosen to join Ann Lorem as chief medical officer. And, uh, I, you know, I think most folks know now who are tuning in that Ann Lorem's mission is to take advantage of the technology that was created under my leadership, uh, ASO technology, to provide uh, personalized medicines, uh, ASO medicines for patients with these nano-rare diseases, N of one kinds of patients for free for life. But I'm uh, anxious to hear why, it, given all the opportunities you have to, uh, for ways to spend your time, why invest in Enlorem as you have? It's in my gut. I feel this is the way to go. <clears throat> I spent the first uh, 10 years of my career training in medicine, the next 10 years developing ways to diagnose patients with genomics, and, uh, but, but none of it has led to therapy, meaningful therapy, I feel. And I was at a talk a couple of years ago, uh, a Gordon conference where the leaders in genetics were there, and um, we heard about this amazing drug for uh, spinal muscular atrophy, mm -hmm. and that just opened a lot of eyes, like, wow. There's a therapy for this now, and this was, of course, developed at Ionis. And um, one of the audience members was an employee of Ionis, and I asked them, "Why don't we just personalize these drugs for people, uh, for for all these mutations that we have?" And I think back on that moment. For me, it was uh, an eye-opening experience to think about how all this data and genetics we've been compiling for the last 10 years could be applied towards therapy. I can't think of a more exciting area of medicine. To me, I, I'm, I'm completely in. I'm really excited with the patients that we have enrolled. I am very excited every time I get to talk to a physician that has a patient that they'd like to nominate. Yeah. And I think the, the outcome, we don't know. It's a, it's a giant experiment. We hope that the patients respond in the ways that we expect them to, but we're going to learn a tremendous amount. The patients are our partners in this, you know, mm -hmm. so. Well, I, I think we've all been stunned at the response to Enlorem and how many applications for treatment and how many patients we've accepted and how much how challenging it's been to try to meet all the demand. Does anything stand out to you as 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 challenges that remain for us as we go forward to try to really broaden the benefit that we can bring one patient at a time? What stands out to me is I think we're just at the tip of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. Yes, we've had <clears throat> a couple of hundred patients nominated perhaps. <clears throat> They've accepted 50 or growing number. But 
there's probably 100,000 patients a year that are getting whole genome sequence. If the, these mutations are really as rare as you know, we think they are, uh, I just, and Lorem has, has huge potential. Um, and I don't know how it's gonna scale. <laughs> this is, my main concern is we might be too successful. Yeah, yeah. And how are we gonna manage? Yeah. But I think we need to take it one, one step at a time, see how it goes, demonstrate to ourselves and to a skeptical community of patients, uh, researchers and physicians, just what uh, we can accomplish and take, take, it, take it from there. But yeah, I think. Well, as the guy who led the invention of the technology, I can assure you it's scalable. All we really need to do is you know, raise the funds to do it and put together the team. And I feel like we've got just an incredible team at Enlorm. And that's the challenge that lies ahead. And the challenge that lies ahead is always the challenge that you created by solving the challenge that you, you dealt with yesterday, right? So it's uh, wonderful to have you join us in that. And it's also delightful that uh, we were able to visit, uh, and I'm sure, uh, the Unlarmed podcast audience will will greatly enjoy this uh, this uh, this this chat. Oh, it's very exciting! Thanks for having me. Keep up the great work. I think it's really important that we spread the news uh, for patients with rare disease, especially. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, patients need to hear about it. Doctors need to hear about it. And I'm just surprised how few people have really heard about it at this point, you know? We need yeah. to get the word out. Still, well, yeah. this is all a part of it, and it's all a part of the holistic care for these patients. And Lorem is a nonprofit committed to discovering and providing personalized experimental treatments for free, for life, to patients with genetic diseases that affect 1 to 30 patients worldwide referred to by Enlorem as nano-rare. Many of these patients progress and die without ever achieving a diagnosis. This is where Enlorem comes in. They do the impossible by providing hope and for those that they can help, free lifetime treatment. For more information about Enlorem or today's episode, visit enlorem.org. Any questions can be sent into podcast at enlorem.org. Search Enlorem on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Facebook to connect with us. Please rate and review the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This truly helps us climb the charts and allows others to find the show. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Stan Crook. Our videographer is John Magnuson of Mighty One Productions. Our producers are John Magnuson and Kira Deneen of DNA Today. Thank you for listening.